So you mentioned uh, whether it's a family business or a large corporation. I got me thinking, you know, Flanders uh, was a family business, but it was a pretty big family business. It wasn't always that way. So uh, you guys scaled the, the business pretty significantly. And maybe tell us a little bit about what that journey looked like along the way. Back then in 94, we had already started sowing the seeds of expansion. Coal mining in Southern Indiana, Southern Illinois, it wasn't as expanding as much. But at the same time, places like Wyoming and Texas were, were really doing that. That was an expansion. We just followed the customers, right? And we found that most of the products and services that they needed out there, we had as well. Following the mining industry again in Arizona, really got into, this was not intentional, but doing autonomous stuff and this was you know in the early 2000s which was now we hear about autonomous trucks and cars and things like that but back then these were blast hole drills and we had some really smart engineers that almost on a dare the customer said hey we'd really like to be able to operate this semi-autonomously like at the beginning it was growing out of necessity it sounded like like you guys were running out of customer base customer base locally so you grew the engineering part we talk about the back of the napkin that sounds more like taking a chance right Exactly. Hey, Metalworking Nation, Jason Zenger here. I want to tell you about Palo Alto Networks. They offer zero trust for OT without the PTSD. Keeping operational technology secure and running smoothly is a tall order. It's enough to make the coolest operations director wake up with night sweats, and we don't want that. Zero Trust OT Security delivers comprehensive visibility and security for all OT assets, networks, and remote operations. The Palo Alto Network solution provides exceptional OT protection with over 1,100 app IDs for OT protocols, over 500 profiles for critical OT assets, and over 650 OT-specific threat signatures supported. It provides best-in-class security while simplifying OT security management. It sees and protects everything in the network, and it automates threat detection while implementing zero trust across all operations. We know right now that security at manufacturing companies is critical, and you need to take action on this. So sleep better with the most comprehensive platform to detect, manage, and secure OT assets. Learn how the Palo Alto Network's Zero Trust for OT Security Solution can achieve 351% ROI over five years. To learn more, find the link in the description or visit paloaltonetworks.com. That's paloaltonetworks.com. Welcome to Making Sparks, the podcast where we ignite your passion for metal fabrication and fuel your business success. Join industry leaders and dive deep into the world of metalworking. From business insights to tips of the trade, Making Sparks is your forge of knowledge. During each episode, discover success stories, innovative solutions, and expert interviews that light the path to business growth. Subscribe today and grow and improve your company, and let's make sparks fly together. Welcome back to the Making Sparks podcast. I'm Casey Velker. I'm sitting here with my co-host, Matthew Nix, and he brought a special guest today, and I'm going to let him introduce who that is. Have you ever been referred to as a special guest before? <laughs> no, I feel special. <laughs> well, you are special. <laughs> well, we're glad you're here, Joe. Uh, yep, I'm Matthew Nix, and I am excited to introduce Joe Patterson to the show today, and known Joe uh, quite a long time, and, and uh, actually... 
he was my executive coach at one time. So if we do anything good, he gets the credit for it. And if I screw it up, he didn't coach me good enough. <laughs> but no, uh, really known Joe a long time. Joe is uh, previously third generation family business. And he's going to talk to us today a little bit about that story and uh, really neat business. And uh, and he's a, a local guy here. And so I see you got a Rose Holman shirt on today. So uh, I'm assuming you're a Rose Holman grad. Yeah, Rose Holman grad, uh, 2000. That's when I graduated uh, Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering. Very nice. Well, if anyone's listening and is not familiar with Rose Holman, it's a small uh, technical college. Yeah. How, would you, how would you describe it? I, I know what Rose Holman is, but how would you describe that? Yeah, it's almost exclusively an engineering school. Yep. And, um, World-renowned engineering school. Yeah, so I think... My senior year was the first year where we had uh, U.S. News and World Report, uh, number one college for engineering in the U.S. for undergraduate education without a doctoral program. And since then, I think I think it's still going. The streak's still alive. So 23 years later, uh, still been number one. So pretty excited about that. Yeah, it's a great school. Uh, that makes me think of uh, the joke. So Casey normally does a dad joke for us to kick the show off. And he's a lot better at jokes than I am, but I really like this one and I think it'll resonate with a lot of people. So, uh, do you know what a Purdue grad calls a Rome, Rose Holman grad? I don't know, but I'm hoping it's bad about Purdue and Rose Holman. I don't know. <laughs> Boss. <laughs> have you heard that one before? Yeah. 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 We have several Purdue engineers, uh, that, that are on our team. So I figured we had a Rose Holman guy come in once and, and crack. I'm going to have to tell before. that one to my, my father-in-law graduated from Purdue and, uh, I'm an IU fan. Obviously, I went to, I went to USI, but I'm one of those Southern Indian guys as an IU fan. And uh, uh, I always have to kind of give him a little bit of crap. And uh, one of the coolest things, though, is, is he took me to uh, my first ever Purdue basketball game last year, which was IU at Purdue, and IU beat him. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Right? We used to have the joke where, uh, I don't know if you remember the far side, those single panel cartoons. Um, but there was one that was uh, – Midvale school for the gifted and it said pull and you see this guy kind of putting his hand like pushing on the door yeah. you know trying to get in so we crossed that out and put Purdue skill school for the gifted so we had a few jokes but yeah. they didn't really know who we were so it was yeah. you know, like a gnat bothering an elephant but. yeah yeah good stuff well why don't you introduce yourself Joe tell us a little bit about tell the audience who you are and your background yeah. sure Joe Patterson bo born and raised here in Evansville so just down the street from Poseyville um, like I said graduated from uh, mechanical engineering college in 2000 went straight to work for the family business so started doing um you know designs around electric motors and really did that that's the for the the family businesses flanders and we were primarily a motor repair company uh had locations at that time in uh evansville and southern illinois and uh florida and casper wyoming and Longview, Texas, and among other places, and then had field offices, other places. Um, but my role starting off was just jumping right into, hey, we need some shafts drawn up. You know, got had somebody bugger one up real bad uh, and went from that to, hey, let's we can actually we make all the parts for these motors. Why don't we make our own motors? Right. You know. And so we made the coils and commutators. And then my older brother and I learned how to design motors from from someone who uh, had been doing it for quite a long time. So spent over a decade primarily doing that. Just um, taking customer would come to us and say, hey, I need a I need a motor that has X number of horsepower at this number of RPM that fits in this envelope. 
can you make it for us? Real custom type stuff. And did that for quite some time. We actually got pretty good at it. Um, to the point where we bought the property right next to ours, uh, which was um, a quarter million square foot shoe warehouse at the time. We converted it, me and uh, the team converted it into a manufacturing facility. So we did welding, machining, manufactured coils, uh, laminations, all that stuff, along with you know having a team of engineers. So did that for a while and then jumped around the business a bit um, at one point. Uh, ran all of the repair shops in the U.S. Uh, we had managers local at each one, but was responsible for each one of those. Then was um, wanting to do something a bit different. So that's actually when I got uh, first met, met up with Matthew was uh, left the family business for a time, did some consulting, um, uh, you know, performance coaching, but also did, you know, financial analysis and then did still my my bread and butter that I couldn't get away from with electric motors and doing consulting on that as well got back uh, went to school during that time as well got a master's of business administration it was a joint program between University of Louisville and University of Kentucky so we can make all the UK jokes we want because I don't really care about that but uh, uh, and I've probably offended some of your audience but that's all right um, got that in in 2017. Uh, and then right around that time, Flanders actually had an opening in uh, Australia. So we had some significant business there, primarily following the mining industry. So me packed uh, me and my family up and we moved to Australia for two years and got to run the Asia Pacific operations there. Uh, and we were talking about sticking around for another two years. And what does that look like? Um, but that was right in January of 2020. And there were rumblings coming out of China about some new virus and all that stuff. So we made the decision to come back in March of 2020. And we were my kids went to school for six days uh, before they said, OK, year's done and homeschool and all that fun stuff. So straight into a pandemic and still work for Flanders at that point, just as principal engineer for electric machines. And so I got involved in a lot of different stuff. And then um, we actually sold the business. Um, I think it was March of first of March of 2021, uh, private equity firm. I stuck around, was vice president of engineering for, for almost, right at 18 months and then decided it was time to, to move on. So doing some consulting now, looking at some other ventures. Um, so that's kind of my story in a nutshell. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. I have several questions that came out. Of that. I definitely want to hear a little bit about Australia. I'm sure that got some yeah. neat, neat stories there, but let's back up a little bit. So um, you left the business the first time to go out and do consulting. I'd be interested to hear a little bit about why you did that, what that looked like. I think a lot of our listeners are in closely held businesses or family businesses. And, mm -hmm. you know, you know, just tell us a little bit about the thought process that went into that and kind of what that looked like. For sure. So, you know, like I said, I, I graduated in 2000 and, and, I th and I got married in 2000, but went straight into I think I've had like two days off. <laughs> uh, Mason, we're going to edit that. <laughs> Say that again. Graduated in, in 2000 and uh, just went straight to work right after that. And um, at Flanders doing, pardon me, the, the engineering pieces. And, and um, you know, I had passions outside of that, but those were, you know, kind of sidelined. And I thought, you know, now's a good time. I, I, I felt this calling to do something different. 
uh, you know, look at it a different way. And it was a very difficult decision. My, you know, told my, uh, my father who was, uh, president at the time and my grandfather was still alive at that time, the chairman of the board told them, Hey, I wanted to do something a bit different. And those were tough conversations, but really felt it was best, not just for me, but, but for the business. Hey, if there's opportunities for me to learn things other places, and that was part of the reason I was looking at consulting is, hey, what are some other places doing, right? And if I can bring those back to, to Flanders, that's great. Or if I never come back, you know, I still had a bit of ownership. I still had a seat on the advisory board. So there were opportunities to That's what to I was going to ask. You still had ways to influence the company outside of, of your employment. Yeah. For, <laughs> for my first... For my first several months, my biggest customer was Flanders because I was still doing quite a bit of uh, engineering work for them uh, from the motor design side. So there was ways to, to take what I was learning there. And then the MBA courses as well. You know, we were a team of engineers, right? Uh, so we knew the technical pieces uh, very well, but some of the business aspects, you know, were we hadn't had classical training in that. So I was able to take some of that in, into the business as well. Yeah. So it was a difficult, obviously difficult decision to leave, difficult conversations, but not necessarily hostile. I mean, it no, sounds like they were uh, in the end somewhat supportive, at least of it. And yeah, definitely, definitely very supportive and, and uh, understood, you know, me wanting to do try something a bit different. Um, and, you know, was, hey, anytime you want to come back, let us know. And, you know, that did happen. That worked yeah. out. Yeah. Hey everyone, this is Adam Schmidt with ProFab Alliance, bringing you the sparks of knowledge for today's episode. If you're trying out for a sports team, you're not just gonna take some written test and it's a full tryout and it could be over several days. Why aren't we doing that in our shops? Invite those candidates to come in and work a half a day or a full day where, where you actually pay them. Give them a couple projects to try out. See how they do, see how they mesh with the other team members. You may lose a couple of candidates that don't wanna participate in that. Honestly, on the other side of it, they should want to do that because they want to come to a place that they'll enjoy working. So it's not only a tryout for them, but they're actually able to try out the company and see, you know, is it a good fit for me as well? So overall, I think you need to, you know, take those interviews a step further, get creative and think outside the box on how we can make sure that uh, each one of our future team members is a great fit and uh, will eventually retire with us. I got a quick question. Uh, so you said you your biggest customer was Flanders Consulting. Can you give a little insight on did that did that give you a little bit of a safety net? Because what I'm thinking is, you know, some of our listeners they may be people that uh, are possibly looking to start their own thing. They're working for a company and they're looking to start their own thing. Um, and a lot of people think that means that they have to cut ties with that company and have to whether it's compete with them or whatever, but you, I know it's you, you, it was your family, but I, I mean, I've heard the stories in the other ways around where it's not family, but people well, a little do. bit like our, relationship. Was, that's what was, our relationship was, um, when me and Matthew partnered, I was doing marketing for Nick's companies and you were I, a W2 employee. I was W2 employee and I went up to his office one day and, uh, I was nervous and shaking and I said, Hey, I kind of want to take my freelance. I was freelancing a little bit on the side. Not much. I wasn't really doing much at all. Um, but it's like you said, I had this, I had this feeling or calling or whatever that I should be running my own business. And, um, it was nothing against Nick's actually. That was the hardest conversation was Nick's. I loved their culture. A lot of people I worked with, they were just great people. And so, um, 
so I actually had someone on Facebook say, well, if you have that good relationship with your boss, just go, go talk to him. And I said, okay. So I went and talked to you. And so I was just wondering, like, um, do you have any insights for like, if someone is like, if they, if they kind of are thinking about starting their own thing, um, would you persuade them to talk to their bosses and, and tell them that this is on their mind? I think it, you can build it up right in your mind that it's going to go really bad. And, and you know, I, you know, there's going to be screaming and yelling and all that stuff. But I think if you, if you come out of a place for uh, what you're trying to do, what's best for you and also perhaps even the business, I found that, that even in, you know, family business or, or, or in uh, large corporations, people want to understand what you're trying to do, right. And what you're passionate about. And if you're passionate about a certain thing, you're typically going to be really good at it, right. Cause you'll work hard at it and you'll find ways to, to keep doing that thing and getting better at it. So for us, it was okay. You know, we, we hate to see you go, but I think you still have skills and abilities that can help us. Right. And that's where the, the, that, that safety net that you talk about, but then you can have that conversation in a way that is not, you know, double middle fingers on the way out and slamming doors and stuff. You can say, okay, here's what I'm looking for. And, and you can have a, uh, a professional conversation around it. And, and I would, again, I would strongly encourage if, if people are thinking about that to definitely do it. So you mentioned, uh, whether it's a family business or a large corporation, I got me thinking, you know, Flanders, uh, was a family business, but it was a pretty big family business. It wasn't always that way. So, uh, you guys scaled the, the business pretty significantly, uh, particularly in the early 2000s. Maybe just give us a little bit of a flavor of what that, that looked like based on numbers, you know, headcount, whatever metrics you want to use to kind of paint a picture and, and maybe tell us a little bit about what that journey looked like along the way. Yeah. So, so I started full-time in, in 2000, like we talked about, but, um, my original hire on date was 1994. Uh, and, and like I tell everybody, I don't remember ever being asked to go to work. I was pretty much told, Hey, you're going to come in and wash trucks and clean up and do all that good stuff. But back then in 94, we had already started sowing the seeds of expansion, right? we Primarily, more than 50% of the business was mining. Um, and at that point, uh, coal mining in southern Indiana, southern Illinois had, had kind of dried up some or wasn't as expanding as much. But at the same time, places like Wyoming and Texas were, were really doing that, um, going after it pretty hard. So that was an expansion. We just followed the customers, right? And we found that most of the products and services that they needed out there, we had as well. So we could move out there, take the mining know-how and put that in different places. But then, hey, we still have this shop here. Let's transition what what is around that's heavy industry that's similar. Well, uh, a lot of steel uh, mills, aluminum that were within a five, six-hour drive, paper, utilities, those kinds of things. So we could still service additional customers, keep the, you know, the customers that are mining-centric out there. So we, we did some expansion through geographic expansion. And then at, around that time, we had, uh, following the mining industry again in, in um, Arizona, really got into, this was not intentional, but doing autonomous stuff. And this was, you know, in the early 2000s, which was, you know, now we hear about autonomous trucks and cars and things like that. But back then, these were blast hole drills. And we had some really smart engineers that almost on a dare uh, the the customer said, "Hey, we'd really like to be able to operate this semi autonomously." A couple of really smart guys uh, figured out a way to do that, kind of on back of the napkin type of things. We ended up over the course of a, a short period of time turning that into a product. Uh, so, 
it was, you know, won't go into all the technical bits and pieces of it, but taking that, that innovation and then going from back of the envelope to actually creating a product out of it and then selling it repeatedly over the course of, um, you know, years. So those two things are kind of how we ended up in Australia and South Africa and a lot of different places is taking what we had and saying, Hey, there's markets for this and, and applying it other places. So some of it was just, like at the beginning, it was growing out of necessity. It sounded like like you guys were running out of customer base, customer base locally, so you're, you grew yes, exactly. But then the engineering part, where you talk about the back of the napkin, that sounds more like taking a chance, right? In that situation, you know, the autonomous drills, it was almost like a, a high reward, very little risk because the the drill had actually caught fire, uh, not by anything we did, right? The customer did that, and and they said, hey, we we're going to rebuild it because we can't buy a new one. So we'll rebuild it. And while you guys are doing, while we're doing that, why don't you guys come in and put all the sensors and all the bells and whistles that you need. And so we did that. And, and, uh, it was, it was one of those, uh, happy accidents that worked out really well. Hey, metalworking nation, Jason Zenger here. Do you know, I operate on NetSuite, the ERP when you need one source of truth for all of your data, your CRM, your accounting, your operations, everything. If this is you, you should know these three numbers, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage your risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash chips. That's netsuite.com slash chips to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash chips. Do it now. Transitioning from a historically service business to a product business is quite a transition. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges that because we're we're even you know working through that a little bit within our own company? I mean, we're historically a service business, and you know we're, we're not that we want to move away from that, but trying to move into more of a product focus. So, talk about some of the pitfalls, challenges. What would you do differently? Yeah, for sure. What the way I like to think of it, right? And, and I like I like to like cook on Sundays or whatever, and I I like to make chili. But I've never made the same pot of chili twice, right? Sometimes I use an extra thing of beans or sometimes I use pork instead of ground beef, right? So, but I make it, I try and make it work. And so I think service business is a lot like cooking. You kind of make it work and do whatever you got to do to get the, so that everybody's satisfied and, and at a reasonable cost. Product services is like baking, right? And if you want to make a, a really good cake, you have to sit there and measure everything out, right? And amount of butter and flour and all that stuff. And you got to make sure the humidity's right. And, you know, very, very detailed process around how you do that. And you have to do it the same way every time. 
And it's just a completely different mindset. And so going from services to products is really a much different mindset. You know, the, the good enough is not good enough kind of thing. That is, I think, the best way to think about it. And so you have to get really good in process. You have to get really good on training. You have to get really good on things. And then you have to quit innovating, right? And once a product's done, it's done. And then if you want to make a better product, okay, then that's a different process. So you got to, you know, almost freeze what your product is. You can still work on it in the background, but you're selling this product for over, you know, you wouldn't want to get a Ford F-150 that innovations on it are different every time. No, you want the, or McDonald's cheeseburger or however you want to think about it. So for us, that was, that was definitely a mindset shift and you have to, the way you were doing things is not the way you can keep doing things and having a bit of separation there, I think helps as well. Yeah. Good stuff. Hmm. So you also, you had a very decentralized model. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I'm very interested in that. And maybe, uh, for those that aren't familiar with what we're talking about, we're talking about, uh, not only geographically, but, but the way the org chart is structured. So, you know, uh, some companies might have, Location spread out geographically, but they have a very centralized uh, org chart. And I believe I'm not misspeaking here that you guys were advocates of the decentralized model. We are as well. And so, yeah. So talk a little bit about that. And then maybe even how does that play into this? You've got this decentralized service business and then you've got this product focus that you're trying to drive at the home base, more of a corporate initiative. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's, and we had, we had that debate over years, right? A centralized model versus a decentralized model. There's, there's benefits and and drawbacks to each, yep. but it, from a service from a service standpoint, I I can't stress a decentralized model. If you have, especially in ge geographic locations, the what we found right is Evans Hills Market was f much much different than Lakeland's Market, which is much much different even than Southern Illinois Market. And for a centralized office, no matter where you put it, to understand those differences was nearly impossible. You have to have a good leader in place that understands that and give them autonomy to make decisions with the appropriate ground rules, right? And, uh, you know, how much money can we make and got to have, you know, cultural fits and all that good stuff. But a, but a centralized model for products is far better because you can't make um, individualized decisions based on just what's available to you because you get different products. You know, it's that Ford F-150 again. You can't have AM, FM radios in one and just AM radios in another. No, they got to all be the same. And that causes headaches and problems. So you do need to centralize some of those functions. But for a service model, 100%, the, the decentralized model makes most sense. So, so were you sort of a hybrid of both then? That's where we ended. That's where we ended up was a bit of a bit of both uh, centralized. There, there's things that you do need to centralize, especially if you're you're in the U.S. like HR functions. Right. You need to be able to have or accounting. Definitely. Right. Have one one set of accounting books. But we we kind of did a bit of a hybrid where, OK, product development was more centralized and product management from cradle to grave type stuff was more centralized but decentralized in pretty much everything we could. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And call me dumb, but um, in, in case someone hears this podcast and hear one of our other episodes, uh, either one of you, can you guys give uh, just a, a, a quick definition of decentralized versus centralized? Like basically it's like having management spread apart versus all well, one, right? No, it's not that that's the point I was trying to make earlier. It's not necessarily just as management spread apart. Um, uh, 
geographically. They could be spread apart geographically, but you could still have somewhat of a centralized model. Um, it's more about the, the autonomy that you have at that specific location. And, and well, let me, let me give you an example. So if you have, uh, engineers or estimators or project managers, um, in a centralized model, they might be situated at other places geographically, but they would report into the head of engineering in the home office or the head of estimating in the corporate office and so forth. In a decentralized model, those folks are all going to report to a localized leader. Okay. So, so you're trying to get as many functions as possible to be, to, to be reporting up through that location. You're trying to give the leader of that location as much autonomy as possible to make local decisions. Um, you know, down to, of course, the hiring and firing of the team. It's not someone at the corporate office deciding what engineers we hire. It's the person leading that location. Uh, and, and I've read and heard uh, that it makes sense to me that there really isn't a right or wrong method. They both have been proven quite successful. It's really just that you, you really need to pick one or the other. And that's why I was kind of asking Joe to, to talk about, you know, doing both. And so, yeah, we have accounting is centralized. Sales and marketing is centralized. Uh, pretty uh, IT, of course, HR, everything else um, is decentralized. And, and that's something that um, it does have challenges because if you have, for, for example, in our business, we have our engineers and our detailers. Most of our audience would know what a detailer is. Our detailers are all reporting through those specific locations. So guess what we have? We have a standardization issue. So we're working on, we need to standardize across all our locations. Everybody reports up through that location. So everybody's doing it like, just like you said, they're all making the cheeseburger a little bit differently. And so there is a need to standardize some things. And, uh, but you can do that without breaking the decentralized model. What we've actually done is we have one person, uh, within our company that is based at the home office that's responsible for that, that uh, among other things. But these folks don't report directly to him, but it's his, job to help standardize it across the, the, the company. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you were saying like a lot of people say you have to choose one or the other, but that was interesting that you guys kind of have a hybrid model. And in my mind, from a guy who really doesn't, you know, my business has nothing to do with that kind of stuff, that I feel like a hybrid model wouldn't be a, a bad idea if, if you well, could just complicates fund. things. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And when you start getting into the nitty gritty and into the weeds, then it becomes, you know, we had a lot of debate about sales as an example. Should that be centralized or, or, or not? And, and where you come into is what's incentivized, what's not. And, you know, if I can get a salesman that's focused on my area, that's great. That works out well for me. But is he driving past three locations to get to the one good one that would benefit other places? Right. And those are the those are the kind of. I think in my getting laser focused on one product, right. And and neglecting the others that that could help others out. Right. And and for me, the way I think about it, it's, it's a tension you manage. I don't think it's a problem you solve. Right. I don't think you just go, okay, now this is the way we do it. And then we're always going to do it this way forever and ever. Amen. You know, Hey, we may have to make changes where we're having issues and, you know, uh, like set sales. Okay. Let's tweak that a little bit. And how does that work? But I don't think there's, to, to Matthew's point, I don't think there's one right answer. We've talked about joining the business, leaving the business, coming back to the business, going to Australia, mm-hmm. coming back from Australia. Uh, 
you, you guys scaled the thing significantly. I mean, how many team members at the peak did you have? Uh, we had over 800 internationally. Yeah, 800 folks. So this is a significant size family business. And you ultimately uh, decide to, uh, the family exits the business, sell, sell it to private equity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, to, to um, you know, we understand, you know, you can't you can tell us all the details. We're not asking you to air your dirty laundry, but just tell us a little bit about what that, process looked like and sure. uh, you know what what you can share about that because I think you know what we're talking about here is taking a third generation family business uh, transitioning from a service to a product focus scaling internationally and eventually exiting the business and so I think that's a quite an intriguing journey for a lot of folks so to share what you can about the end of the journey sure so you know, at that, at that point, we had uh, quite a few family members as, as owners. Um, you know, some worked in the business, some did not. You know, some were um, in leadership positions whenever they did work in the business, some were not. And, and, and so we had some of that friction going on. And, and, and frankly, there's tension involving all of that. Um, what we worked through was, okay, where do we want to be right at the end of the day? And through some... Through some of that, we, we said, look, I don't think we can get, we can't hit our goals where we want to be and do it alone, right? And you really run into capital constraints and um, the ex- trying to keep up with uh, expenses and uh, changing marketplace. And, you know, like I said earlier, we were following coal or mining quite a bit of that was coal. Well, the coal market is, has taken a bit of a hit. So how do we transition and keep everybody happy and oh by the way continue to grow and that's where we said hey we can't can't do all of these things it's just impossible can't serve all these masters no too many masters and and so that's when we started looking hard at at um you know what does it look like to transition some ownership so we we went down down several paths right did it uh, team did a good job of exploring really all the options. We looked at an ESOP, which is, I forget the acronym, but it's, it's employee. Employee stock option program. Yes. I think. I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's, we, we looked at that. We went down that path pretty far. Um, there were positives, just like with everything, positives and negatives associated that looked at minority stakeholders, um, positives and negatives with that. What we ended up with was, I think, where everybody wanted to be, the private equity made the most sense, right? Um, so, you know, there's, we still were able to retain some ownership, uh, but did transition some of, some of that out. And, you know, again, positives and, and negatives associated with that. But I think overall, it's, it's helping to transform the business to where it, you know, it needs to be. And you can struggle with that. You, you get, uh, within a family business, you get pretty locked in on, Hey, these are the way things ought to be. And, and the way things should were back in the day and should be now and having some outside help come in and evaluate that was, was I think beneficial. So did they come in in a majority position right out of the gate? Yeah. 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 You know, I think that there, when people hear private equity, a lot of times their skin starts crawling right away. And I mean, there's plenty of horror stories out there. I've heard some great stories too. And I think private equity is no different than anything else. There's great ones and there's ones, you know, I mean, it's just like anything, but I do think the one thing I've noticed as I've just listened to other folks and, and studied this is that it seems like whether they're, whether they're the good ones or the not so good ones, the one value that they seem to bring to the table, that I think we can all take away is they look Look at things from an objective standpoint and look at it through the lens, most usually through the lens of 
bottom line profitability, which is where they get a bad rap. And right. that does need to be balanced. But I think sometimes as family businesses, we can go too far the other way. And, and I'm guilty of this at times is that, you know, we, a lot of us are very passionate about what we do and we feel a sense of calling and we're trying to build this great organization. And, and I truly do look at profitability as like a, a necessary thing, right? Like I don't really care about that. Right. right. You know, it's not what gets me excited. Right. Um, it's a it's a means to a, a better end to for some people it's they like buying the brand new machines and for some folks it's you know they like inventing the new product you know for me i get excited about building a great team and and you know the excitement that comes around that but but still you can get too focused on that and not enough focused on the balance sheet or on the bottom line and so they bring that to the table to really get folks laser focused on the financial health of the organization and and th- that usually is a good thing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you can speak to that a little bit. I think we, we sometimes sure. neglect that. Yeah, it's it's easy to take your your eye off the ball, right? For 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 sure, especially you can get caught up in oh, let's expand this and and let's do all these great things and do all that. But and hey, you're not keeping an eye on hey, debt schedules and like I said, balance sheets and and private equity is very very focused on that. And you know that's. That's their role. I they mean, have less emotion. They have so much less emotion, and then they're they're anyone that is involved or that works there is incentivized around that. So they're incentivized or matched with what the goals are. Except you can always take things too far and focus only on that, and you know miss treat other, people poorly. And right, you that's can, the horror stories you hear. Exactly, and and you can you can miss a lot of that stuff, uh, which again positives and negatives with all that stuff. But you know, I think um, if if your listeners are looking at that, I, you know, I would suggest, Hey, explore it, right? There's, there's no harm in exploring that and no harm in exploring ESOPs or even having venture capitals or a silent partner or thing like that. If your vision is for is bigger than what the bank will allow you. Yep. <laughs> and so I, I would suggest doing that. Yeah. No, that's, that's great feedback. You know, for us, one of the, the, uh, mechanisms we've used to accomplish, we, we haven't necessarily been looking for capital to expand at, at this point. Uh, well, I mean, we need capital, but that hasn't been our constraint. Um, but I have been very conscientious about are we run the business in a professional manner and it's not just feeding our aspirations or it's not just a personal or family piggy bank. You see that you see all those ends of the spectrums out there. And so what we've actually done is we have several of people on our leadership team that are actually minority partners in the company. Mm-hmm. And so what that's done is and we didn't do that as a means to raise capital. Um but but what it does is it makes us much more disciplined about how we run the business. We we've assembled a board now and we have structured governance and and you know we need to be and I need to be accountable to those other folks too. Um and we need to generate a proper return. But it's folks that are, you know, on the inside that's one of us, is how I say it, that that also believes in the way we're gonna do things and how we're gonna get to the vision statement. And so it's not just the bottom line, but there, it does add that, that component of it. So there's a lot of different ways to bring those into the business. And sometimes I think private equity is a, a fine way to do it. And, and, and some folks bring them in in a minority position and are able to accomplish uh, what, what they want to. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, and I think keeping them the main thing, the main thing, right. And the example I always use is, you know, Chick-fil-A does a lot of I mean, Christian business and they do a lot of great things, but nobody really 
care about them if the chicken wasn't great, right? Yeah. yeah they would just be some yeah. shack off the side yeah. of the road that three yeah. people show up at. So you got to have great chicken, but yeah. they also are very focused on what they're trying to do, yeah. right? They actually don't have the best chicken sandwich. That's the other thing. that it's But it's good enough. It's good enough, There's right? There's plenty of chicken sandwiches out right. there that are better than Chick-fil-A's. Right. But, but it's good enough, and it's that good every single time. I was going to say, I could I could talk to Chick-fil-A a little bit because that's been we're on a diet thing, and they have some pretty healthy chicken options. But the one thing that you get at Chick-fil-A, is no matter which location you go, you're not going to get some bad piece of chicken. You're, it's going to be very the consistent. same consistently good, above consistent. average. That's fine. I'm fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so, but I, I would say the, the Kathy family also realizes it's not just about money, right? And they have, they have aspirations uh, outside of that. And so, the business is a means to help with that, but they also keep an eye on the quality of the chicken and they also make a profit. Yeah. Cause if they quit doing that, they can't do the other things. They exactly. Want to do. Exactly. Yeah. Good stuff. Hey, Jason Zanger here. You should know more about AMT, the association for manufacturing technology. They are the industry representative group that gives us IMTS and more including bridging the gap between IT and manufacturing at their Silicon Valley AMT Tech Lab, expanding globally through their AMT tech centers in China, India, and Mexico, along with representation in Europe and Brazil. Custom research for strategic planning and member meetups that bring manufacturing leaders together. To join the AMT community, reach out to Chrissy Hahn at AMT at ch. A-H-N at amtonline.org or discover more at amtonline.org. Joe, I think we're going to be wrapping up here soon, but, uh, you know, kind of our mission for making sparks is to grow and improve, help, help fabrication business grow and improve their businesses. Um, and so I'm going to ask you, normally people say, ask you for three tips. I'm going to give you just two tips. Um, but, if a business is looking to scale, maybe not from what you guys did to 800 employees, but just in general, I mean, uh, Matthew has talked about how they've scaled in, in other episodes and stuff. But I think from your perspective, what are like two things like that you're like has to happen for you to scale? Like I heard, like I heard, I'm not going to put any answers in you, but I'm going to say what I heard as you were talking was one, you had some really talented people, these engineers and stuff that allowed you to get into some more product type things. And then uh, the, the second trying to remember what the second part was, but there was a second part that I remember you talking about that uh, did it. But what are two things that you think uh, they could must have must have scales. to scale for, for sure. You've got to have, they talk about the right people on the bus in the right seats, right? That's a, that's a big piece. Um, and sometimes those people are not on the bus yet. And so sometimes you may have to bring in other people and, and that kind of uh, input and shift seats around. And that's OK. Right. Uh, as long as we're getting where we need to go. And I would say get in engaged, um, have some sort of outside eyes looking at what you're doing. Right. Um, so we were we got pretty involved in in, you know, some engineering conferences locally there's TSMA, you know, things like that. And if you can learn from other people is a, is a big deal for us. So, you know, with TSMA is tri-state manufacturers Alliance was, um, was helpful because you could see how other people were using their business. Hey, I don't, I'm not going to make tents, but I know what they're doing. I can apply 
10% of what they're doing over here and being able to take that and, and apply it here. That helps grow, grow your business. Um, you know, ProFab Alliance, I think is another way you, you can take what other people are doing and apply it to, to other things, but having a second set of eyes, just looking at, okay, are we doing this the right way? Right. Just having that check. Yeah. You know, everything looks good. Okay. Full bore and we're, we're headed off. So yeah, good stuff. One, one third thing I would like to add to that. I think it's really important is that you got it. There's gotta be a problem in the marketplace that you're solving. I heard read or heard somewhere that said, uh, the, the, uh, limit to, to your scalability is in direct proportion to the problem you're solving in the marketplace and your unique ability to solve it. And so I think, you know, there's that you got to have that first and foremost. And then the things you mentioned are very, very critical and great points to, to add along to that. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Well, Joe, we appreciate you coming on making sparks uh how can people follow along i mean are you are you on social media at all or, i mean can people follow your your consultant so i didn't know if there's anything that they can do to, to kind of be in contact with you yeah uh telios development that's and i'll, I'll spell that really slowly because i i should have thought of that but t-e-l-e-i-o-s development uh and it's uh, joe p at teliosdevelopment.com uh if you're interested or whatever uh, uh, for anything that I do. I don't really have a social media presence or anything like that. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm old school like that. But Well, thanks for joining us, Joe. That was very insightful stuff. Thanks for having me. I had a, had a lot of fun. Hey, Matthew, if you're not making sparks. You're not making money. Bam. <laughs> hey, we're getting better at this. 